1: What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at ChoiceHotels.com, where travels come true. What if
2: AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact.
0: Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM. Let's create.
1: When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class. From HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy, And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And we are continuing with our spooky Halloween October series. And we figured it would be the perfect time to discuss an exhumation. And people do suggest exhumations to us pretty regularly. I was going to
2: say, isn't it always the perfect time
3: to discuss an exhumation? <laughs> it, it is, if it is stuff you missed in history class. But we promise that most of the time we don't go looking for these exhumations. They just kind of happen. It'll be something, come completely unrelated to a potentially disinterred body, and then suddenly there is one, so it's kind of a surprise. But this one is not a surprise. The exhumation is really pretty impossible to avoid, and it's actually what drove listeners like Matthew and Naomi and Barry, as well as our friend and former coworker, Molly Edmonds, to suggest this topic to us in the first place. Because it's a strange, strange topic, I mean, to make the most obvious understatement.
2: Yeah, it really is unusual. Unlike most exhumations that we mention on the podcast, this one wasn't done to verify a cause of death or to relocate the body. It was done to place the months-old corpse on trial. So... Of course, we have to address the question, why would anyone disinter a body to put it on trial? Why, indeed. Especially when that body wasn't just anyone, but was a former pope.
3: So... Encyclopedia Britannica, always a good place to um, start if you want a general picture of For the basics. Yeah. They call this trial one of the most bizarre incidents in papal history. But you could also call it one of the most brutal incidents, one of the most disturbing incidents. But a dead pope on trial wasn't just this freakish event at the time, before we talk about the trial and the specific popes and players involved, we have to talk a little bit about a dark time called the Papal Pornocracy. Uh, It was a, like I said, a series of kind of dark years that started just before the end of the Carolingian imperial line in 888. So we're talking way back. This is an old
2: podcast. So first, just to give you a little context, we'll talk about something a little more recent. after the death of Pope John Paul II a few years back, people around the world, including non Catholics, learned a little bit about the papal electoral process called a conclave. But the Pope hasn't always been elected by a conclave, and in the 9th and tenth centuries the selection process had a lot of input from Roman noble families and German princes. Now these families put forward their own candidates and had their own factions, and according to papal historian Horace K. Mann, quote, the one aim of each party pursued by every resource of violence and intrigue was to get control of the chair of St. Peter. Its occupant must be one of theirs at all costs. So it kind of figures that there'd be quite a bit of trouble, plus a pretty high turnover. And that's also a bit of an understatement. A third of the popes elected between 872 and 1012 died under suspicious circumstances. And between 896 and 904, the most violent, unstable period, there were nine Popes.
3: Well, yeah, that's a remarkably high turnover, even considering that these are older fellows most of the time, um, even when they're actually not always old. But our story takes place in 897. So really right in the thick of this highly controversial, unsettled time. And we're going to start with a pope who started off this high turnover decade, Pope Formosus, who is also our exhumed man on trial, unfortunately for him. And I thought it was interesting because it's not just his, um, the terrible things that happened to him in death, but the ups and downs of his pre-death religious career kind of epitomize the hazards of the time of, of being pope or, or being um somebody who was a contender to be Pope. So he had been born in Rome in about eight sixteen and he was made a cardinal bishop in eight sixty four by Pope Saint Nicholas the First. We're gonna really rattle off a lot of successors of his <laughs> in this brief life story. Here. Yeah, you may
2: want to take notes.
3: <laughs> yeah. Pope Adrian the Second had sent um, the future Pope Formosus on missions to France, where he had performed quite well. He was highly regarded. Then under Pope John VIII, he had been exiled and excommunicated and um There were some pretty outrageous reasons for this, like despoiling cloisters, and it seemed pretty obviously political, since Formosus had, like I said, a good reputation. He was considered ascetic and considered a very peaceful, intelligent man. So, The reasons for this excommunication were probably more that he was himself a good contender to be pope. But after time, he was pardoned, but still not allowed to return. Then eventually, another pope, Pope Marinus I, allowed him back to Rome and returned him to his position. And then under the next two popes, St. Adrian Third and Stephen V, sometimes Stephen the Sixth, he finally grew more powerful. So that's quite a busy life story just leading up to his 891 election, where he himself becomes Pope.
2: Under Stephen, though, some big political things had gone down, so we should tell you a little bit about that too. Charles the Fat, the last Carolingian in the imperial line, had died. In his place, Stephen had reluctantly crowned Duke Guido of Spoleto out of a mess of contenders Roman emperor. But by doing so, he was giving tremendous power to an uncomfortably close neighbor of the papal states. So when Formosus was elected, he also had to go along with Stephen and recognize Guido and his son Lambert as co-Roman emperors.
3: But just because Formosus recognized Guido and Lambert as co-Roman emperors didn't mean he was 100% behind them. In fact, he asked his own preferred candidate, this guy King Arnulf of the East Franks, to come and invade Italy and take care of Guido, get rid of him and get rid of his whole faction. And it almost worked. Arnulf launched a campaign to Italy, and in 896, Formosus did crown him emperor in Rome. So it seemed like almost success. But before Arnulf could actually battle Lambert out in Spoleto, Guido had by this point died. The German contender was struck by paralysis. And that's what you'll see it described as in most sources. I guess this is the 800s. So we don't get too many more details than that. But anyway, Arnulf was out of the running. He had to quit. And not too long after that, Formosus died. So it kind of seems like the the end of this immediate story, but that was not the case at all.
2: The story of Formosus actually picked up just a couple weeks later after the brief pontificate of Boniface VI when a new pope was again elected, Stephen VI, or sometimes the seventh. Unlike Formosus, Stephen was a supporter of the Spalatin party, Lambert and his mother, the Duchess Agletrude. But he didn't just support them in traditional, dignified ways. He agreed to conduct a trial to punish his predecessor, who had betrayed them. So less than a year after Formosus had died, Stephen had him disinterred, dressed in papal vestments, and enthroned. Stephen acted as a prosecutor here in this trial, charging Formosus with the charges levied against him during his excommunication, but focusing on three main things. Perjury, coveting the papacy, and violating church canons, specifically transferring from the See of Porto to that of Rome. So
3: a poor 18-year-old Deacon was forced by Stephen to act as Formosus's defense, you know, answer for him, squeaking out some kind of defense whenever he could interrupt Stephen's tirade against the deceased pope, and he was really too scared to get out much more than mumbles. So unsurprisingly, Stephen found Formosus guilty and ruled that all of his acts would be null and all of his ordinations void. And this really had a double calculated perk in addition to obviously shaming Formosus, memory, which was the primary reason to do it. Formosus had appointed Stephen himself uh, as a bishop, and by having that appointment annulled, Stephen got off the hook for some irregularities in his own transfer from one see to that of Rome. So it was pretty, it was pretty tricky on his part to to clean up his his own record a little bit. But it wasn't just about assuring Stephen's legitimacy, though, or cutting out Formosus's uh, proteges who he had um, consecrated. It was about just completely disrespecting. Respecting the deceased pope's body, and I mean, the, the following is really pretty disturbing what they what they did to the guy. And I think this is why um,
2: this story has stuck around so so prominently in history. Yeah, for example, the papal vestments were ripped from the corpse, and it was redressed in layman's clothes. The fingers used for consecrations were cut off, and Ogletrude got to keep them. And the body was then dragged through the streets buried in a pauper's grave before being dug up again and dumped into the Tiber. But
3: thankfully, there's such a thing as going too far. And even in this violent partisan time in Rome, folks were not happy with Stephen and this disgraceful treatment of his predecessor. So... It was kind of a situation of what goes around, comes around. Formosus' body was eventually pulled out of the river by a hermit, where it was reburied, and not long after that, miracles started being attributed to him. And to add to matters, for for the Romans who were paying attention to the story, the Lateran Basilica, which is the official ecclesiastical seat of the Bishop of Rome, also known as the Pope, collapsed in an earthquake, which seemed like a terrible, terrible sign. And so all of this, plus Stephen really pushing the point too hard, his insistence that the clergy ordained by Formosa send in letters acknowledging that their appointments were invalid, all of this bubbled up and finally led to rebellion. The clergy and the people of Rome rose up against Stephen.
2: Yeah, so Stephen was stripped of his papal powers and thrown into prison. And there, the allies of Formosa strangled him in August 896. The next pope, Romanus, lasted only a few months, and the one following him, Theodore II, just a few weeks. But before Theodore died, he got right to work on honoring the dead, desecrated Formosus. He held his own synod regarding the Cadaver Synod, annulling Stephen's ruling and restoring Formosus's acts and consecrations. He also had the body brought back, exhumed once again to St. Peter's, and reburied in its old tomb. So... After
3: the brief pontificate of Theodore II, next came John IX, who, to really make it clear how uncool this whole trial of the dead pope had been, again nullified Stephen's Senate twice, just for good measure. And because it apparently needed spelling out, too, he also prohibited future trials of dead people. Probably a good policy for anyone, but um, not, at, or at least if you're actually putting the body on trial. I'll, I'll add that caveat. But not everyone was a Formosa supporter. I know we're talking about overturning this cadaver synod. Uh, the last pope in this decade of rapid-fire succession and intrigue, Pope Sergius III had supported Stephen from the beginning. He'd even taken part in the Cadaver Synod, the trial himself. And like Stephen, Pope Sergius III also had an allegiance or alliance with the Spolitan faction. And um, he had had a pope and an anti-pope strangled to pave the way for himself and um, allied himself Further, with the most powerful family in Rome, Senator Theophylact and his Byzantine princess wife, Theodora. And just kind of a side note here, Sergius even had a son with their teenage daughter who became a very, very powerful future Roman matriarch and pope maker. Herself, but as back back to our main tale here, as proof of his loyalty to the House of Spoleto, Sergius reaffirmed the Cadaver Synod, and this was really more than just talk. I mean, I know it sounds like a few years after the fact, maybe just trying to keep your allies comfortable. But it meant that all of Formosus's ordinations were, again, invalid. So anyone who had received orders under him needed to go back and do it again. And Sergius was especially vengeful for any bishops who had been consecrated by Formosus, who would obviously be the men most closely connected to the former pope and um, his enemy.
2: So all in all, this is a pretty grisly story, and during the papal pornocracy, it extended a bit beyond Sergius, too. John Peter Fam, former Vatican diplomat and author of Heirs of the Fisherman, behind the scenes of papal death and succession, puts it pretty succinctly when he writes that, quote, "...although, at least in the minds of believers, the office that these popes have held in succession..." is of divine origin. How these men have been raised to that office is a very human affair.
3: Yeah, and Pham's book that we just mentioned, I mean, really does go into the nitty-gritty of it all, you know, um, looking at the history of popes and, and how they died and what happened after they died and how uh, the new pope was, was chosen. And I, I think it's interesting to look at that. We're probably more familiar with the 20th century history, but to look at these right. times in the 800s and 900s Hundreds and and see what was going on and what um, power plays were were going on, but we want to leave on a pretty interesting side note, something to think about. There hasn't ever been a Pope for Moses the Second. Poor guy. Though Cardinal Pietro Barbo did consider the name in 1464. He had to be talked out of it, apparently. His choice instead was Paul II. Sounds a lot... Safer. A lot safer. Not calling to mind any dark chapters in history and... um, anything you might not want to think about during a celebratory time. So anyway though, this was a really interesting thing to research. So I'm glad that Molly let us know about it and thanks to Matthew and Naomi and Barry for all suggesting it as well, making letting us know that it was something y'all really wanted to hear about too.
2: Yeah, it seems like you can get taken to task sometimes for looking at the pope in such a human light, but it is really fascinating.
3: It is. So I think that is a good a time as any to bring us to listener mail while we're talking about listener suggestions. So our first email is from Jennifer and she wrote in to say, my family and I are traveling around the world for a year, two adults and two boys aged 10 and 8. We first listened to your Marco Polo and Great Wall podcast on the way to the Great Wall of China. We listened to your Medici series when we stayed in Italy and checked out all the most violent parts of Florence. We listened to your podcast about Mary Queen of Scots when we stayed in Sterling, her childhood home in Scotland. And now we are listening to your Book of Kells podcast on the way to Dublin to see it. So I don't know, this might be one that they would have wanted to to skip in Rome, I don't know, but she went on to write, your podcasts have made history come alive for all of us and really added some depth to our travels around the world. Um, so I thought that was just such a neat email. We do get a lot of um, mail from folks who are traveling and, and sort of use the podcast as a little travel primer if they're headed somewhere, but I don't think I've ever heard from a family who was traveling around the world for a year. So I hope Take us with you. Take us with you. <laughs> Take us. We'll come. We can, like, deliver live podcasts for your entertainment, maybe. <laughs> um, so thank you, Jennifer, for writing in. I hope you guys are having fun. And then I also have just kind of a funny email. Well, it probably wasn't funny for Rochelle of uh, Toronto when she wrote it. But she said, <laughs> today I had to go to the dentist and unfortunately get a root canal. I'm not good with dental procedures, but I'm happy to say your podcast on the war of the worlds and historical hoaxes got me through. I hate hearing all those tools whirring and the dentist and hygienist talking about all the weird stuff they see. I was so glad when they said I could listen to my iPod. Anyway, thank you for those engaging and lengthy podcasts that were just the distraction I needed. So, um, this. Too, is a new sort of email. We do hear from lots of people who are using the podcast when they're training for a marathon or they're like working on an Excel spreadsheet all day or something. But I th- don't think I've ever heard from anybody who was listening during a dental procedure.
2: No, I mean, I really don't know how long a root canal takes, so maybe we should start timing our <laughs> podcast to that. Root length. canal specials?
3: Yeah. yeah, we can start uh, maybe advertising them as such. <laughs> um, so <laughs> thanks for writing in, Rochelle. We're glad that we helped you through your dental procedure. And um, if anybody else wants to write in and maybe share some other unusual uh, podcast listening stories with us. Keep it clean, though. Yeah, <laughs> please. Um, you can write us. We are at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Twitter at Missed in History, and we're on Facebook. And you can, of course, send us um, just your suggestions, too, for, for future episode topics.
2: And if you want to learn a little bit more about the topics we talked about in this podcast, we have an article called How the Papacy Works, and you can find it by searching for it on our homepage, which is at www.howstuffworks.com. Be
1: sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Works iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.